So Winnie the Pooh comes up to Christopher Robin one day, and he helps him get his boots on, and Pooh realizes boots means adventure. And Pooh's like, so what are we doing? And Christopher Robin says, we're going on an expedition. And that's where this story, which is going to illustrate a lot of what Mark's about, is going to pick up. And Pooh says, going on an expedition? I don't think I've ever been on one of those. Where are we going on this expedition? Expedition, silly old bear. It's got an X in it. Oh, said Pooh, I know. But he didn't really. We're going to discover the North Pole. Oh, said Pooh again. What is the North Pole? He asked. It's just a thing you discover, said Christopher Robin carelessly, not being quite sure himself. Oh, I see, said Pooh. Are bears any good at discovering it? Of course they are. And Rabbit and Kanga and all of you. It's an expedition. That's what an expedition means. A long line of everybody. You'd better tell the others to get ready while I see if my gun's all right. And we must all bring provisions. Bring what? Things to eat. Oh, said Pooh happily. I thought you said provisions. I'll go and tell them. And so he goes off. So, okay, so first off, what we're seeing already is there's something going. There's, an, there's a journey that's beginning, but nobody in the story seems to really understand what they're about to undertake. <laughs> and Pooh doesn't know what provisions are, but he knows what food is. So he's good with that. Now, uh, they go and see Rabbit. And Pooh tells him, we're all going on an expedition with Christopher Robin. What is it when we're on it? Says Rabbit. A sort of boat, I think, said Pooh. Oh, that sort. Yes, and we're going to discover a pole or something. Or was it a mole? Anyhow, we're going to discover it. We are, are we? said Rabbit. Yes, and we've got to bring Poe things to eat with us in case we want to eat them. And so they go on and invite Piglet. And Piglet says, "Um, to discover what? Piglet says anxiously, Oh, just something. Nothing fierce, right? Christopher Robin didn't say anything fierce. He just said it had, had an X in it. <laughs> it's not the necks, I mind, said Piglet earnestly. It's their teeth. But if Christopher Robin is coming, I don't mind anything. And so they gather together and they begin on the journey. Now, they all start moving along And then they come to a very dangerous spot. Christopher Robin tells everyone to be quiet. Shh, hush, it's a dangerous spot. So they had come to a stream which twisted and tumbled between high rocky banks. And Christopher Robin saw at once how dangerous it was. It's just the place, he explained, for an ambush. What sort of a bush? Whispered Pooh to Piglet. A gorse bush? My dear Pooh, said Owl in his superior way, don't you know what an ambush is? Owl, said Piglet, looking round him severely, Pooh's whisper was a perfectly private whisper, and there was no need. An ambush, said Owl, is a sort of surprise. So is a gorse bush sometimes, said Pooh. An, an ambush, so I was about to explain to Pooh, said Piglet, it's a sort of surprise. If people jump out at you suddenly, that's an ambush, said Owl. It's an ambush, Pooh, when people jump at you suddenly, explained Piglet. Now, Pooh, who knew what an ambush was, said that a gorse bush had sprung at him suddenly one day when he fell off a tree, and he had taken six days to get all the prickles out of himself. We are not talking about gorse bushes, said Owl, a little crossly. I am, said Pooh. And they keep on going. And, and you see, the story continues, and there's a lot of confusion about a lot of things. And people are misunderstanding words and terms, and Owl's getting a little frustrated that nobody understands. And then we come to this one part where we realize that Christopher Robin doesn't have a clue what's going on either. So as soon as they had finished their lunch, Christopher Robin whispered to Rabbit, and Rabbit said, yes, yes, of course. And they walked a little way up the stream together. I didn't want the others to hear, said Christopher Robin. Quite so, said Rabbit, looking important. It's, I wondered, it's only, Rabbit, 
I suppose you don't know. What does the North Pole look like? Well, said Rabbit, stroking his whiskers, now you're asking me. I did know once, only I've sort of forgotten, said Christopher Robin carelessly. It's a funny thing, said Rabbit, but I've sort of forgotten too, although I did know once. I suppose it's just a pole stuck in the ground? Sure to be a pole, said Rabbit, because of calling a pole, and if it's a pole, well, I should think it would be sticking in the ground, shouldn't you? Because there'd be nowhere else to stick it. (laughs) Yes, that's what I thought. The only thing, said Rabbit, is where is it sticking? (laughs) That's what we're looking for, said Christopher Robin. Okay. So I... When I read this um, about a month ago, I couldn't help but see, oh, that's the church. (laughs) Now I want you to consider, the church is on a path, we're on a way, and we more or less know where the path is going. We more or less know how to walk on the path. Oh, but my goodness, there are these terms, there are these concepts, there is sanctification, there is the Trinity, there is the rapture, there are words like eschatology and theology and soteriology and anthropology, and you go down the list and you can, when you're in the wrong sort of company, or maybe it's the right sort of company, your head can spin with concepts and words and To be honest, when we're bumbling around on the way following Jesus, we're a lot like the characters in Winnie the Pooh. We're talking about Bible verses, and we're talking about God, and we're talking about these concepts, and one person's talking about a gorse bush, but it's an ambush. And we're all confused with these terms, and we don't quite get it. Even the idea of an expedition has become an expotition. They don't even know what they're on let alone what they're looking for. Now, there are a lot of people in our country that don't know what they're looking for. And they sort of step out, and the story ends with uh, Roo, Kinga's little baby kangaroo, falls in the stream, and everyone's like, ah, trying to save Roo, and no one knows what to do. And Pooh kind of carelessly picks up a stick, puts it in the water. Roo gets saved through the stick. And when everybody settles down, Christopher Robin realizes Pooh is holding a big pole. I said, Pooh, you found it. You found the North Pole. And so everyone was happy and put Pooh discovered it on, on a sign on it. And it's almost like we're bumbling around and suddenly we're like, oh, that's what it is. That's what we're looking for. Now, following Jesus, however, doesn't have to be complicated. And I can imagine some people walk their Christian life, they read the Bible, they go to church, and there's these terms, and there's these sermons, and there's these ideas, and there's this, I don't know what's going on. But the good news is that the Bible does know what's going on and is trying to communicate that to us. And what Mark wants to do in his gospel is say, here's the path. You don't need to be an expert about all the sophisticated things and laws about this path. You don't need to know all the terms and have all the ideas nailed down. You just need to see Jesus. Because he's not only on the path, He is the path. Or in other words, Mark is going to say that while we're arguing about terms and having no clue what we're doing while we follow and bumble along this path, he's going to tell us Jesus is the North Pole. What is the North Pole? What does it look like? What are we looking for? Mark says Jesus. Jesus is the North Pole. That's what we're after. What is an expedition? What is an expotition? I think it's a boat. Oh, that sort of journey. Like, Mark's going to say, we're going to watch Jesus, our North Pole, and then we'll understand what an expedition is. We'll understand what this way is. We may not get the words right. We may get some of our doctrines wrong. You ever notice that? Everybody thinks their doctrine's right. Not everyone's right, right? I mean, we may have some things wrong, but I think God is ultimately kind of, except for for some serious matters, but for the most part, our doctrine is kind of laughing at us like, gorse bush ambush. I mean, come on, these guys are creative. Look at them splitting hairs over this. 
Um, it's about Jesus, the North Pole. And are we on an expedition? Are we on the journey following our North Pole? So Mark wants to say that Jesus is the way. He does this by using the word, this is a Greek word, hados. H-O-D-O-S. Hados. Now, I bring this up because you actually already know this word. In the second book of the Bible, it's called ex-hados. Ex is out. Hados is road, path, way. Exodus is a Greek title that was given to the book because it's the book about the way out. And Mark takes this Greek word, chras, and it's important to know it because our English translations don't always honor the Greek word. The English word in your Bible will sometimes say road. It will sometimes say path. It will sometimes say way. It will sometimes say roadside or trail or whatever. But the idea for us to see is that in Mark's gospel, whenever you see these words to a Greek reader, it would stand out as the same word, the word applied to the Exodus story. So we're going to look at that word as it comes up in our study. It comes up a total of 16 times in this gospel. Eight of which, so half of these references of Hadas, are going to show up in three chapters. It's a very important three chapters, and we will study those. Um, so in a sense, what you're going to see in this Gospel of Mark is the first part is Jesus in Galilee, and he's basically inviting people on the way. Hey, let's go. We're going. It's, it's kind of like the Winnie the Pooh story. We're going on an expedition. And the disciples are like, expedition? What is that? Is it scary? It has an X in it. Um, so they're all going with Jesus. The middle part is where you see the word Hadas come in full force. And Jesus is going to, while they travel to Jerusalem, teach his disciples about what it means to be on the way. The way isn't just where we go. It's the way we go where we go. Okay? So the way isn't just the path. It's also a manner of life. It's a means of walking on the path. And he's going to teach them that. Then, third part, is we get to Jerusalem itself. And that's where we, we call Passion Week. And Jesus will become a living parable about the way that he invited people on, taught the disciples about, and now he will live it and show it to them. So we get a full course as we bumble along our expedition to the North Pole. So Jesus, the way, the hadas. Now, I already told you that this hadas begins in Exodus, where God gives his people a way. And there's a path through the wilderness as they, as they move toward the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, Moses picks up on that concept. And he uses the word way 36 times in Deuteronomy because as he's telling the, the new generation of Israelites who are about to enter the promised land, he's recounting all of God's faithfulness to them in the past, right? And he's telling them how he led them on the way through the wilderness. And then he tells them not to depart from this way, this teaching that God gave them. Don't go to the right or to the left because it's when you're on this way that you will prosper and God will bless you. That is essentially what the whole book of Deuteronomy is about. It's about their dying leader telling a new generation, don't stray from the path, from the way. Stick to your expedition to the North Pole. It gets picked up in the Psalms. The Psalms use the word way 97 times out of 150 chapters. That's a lot of references to way. Now, most importantly is how the Psalms open with the way. In uh, Psalm chapter 1, you read about blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, 
but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like, now here's the prosperity. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So that's the person who's delighting on God's word. But the man who's sitting with the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers, verse 4 says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is Psalm chapter 1 doing there for us? It's presenting to the reader of this massive prayer and praise book, the Psalter. It's saying, welcome. As you enter, be prepared to choose one of two paths. One path, many are on, and it's as easy as letting the wind take you wherever the wind goes. The other path decides to root itself near the streams of water, i.e., or for example, God's word. Rooting themselves there. So, the Psalms say, you stick with this book, you will be on the proper path, and you will grow fruit, and you will stand in judgment. Then Isaiah and so here is, of course, why we're in Mark now. It's because of Isaiah, chapter 40. Now, this is all review, if you've been here for some, a few weeks or so. Um, in Isaiah, chapter 40, Isaiah is talking to the people who will be in exile in Babylon, and he's encouraging them with this way that will be built through the wilderness so that all of God's exiles can return home. Now, what Isaiah probably intends to be very literal for exiled people to walk through a literal wilderness to get literally home, he may or may not have known that his words were going to mean so much more, that there was going to be a much bigger way that would include all peoples through this metaphorical wilderness of this world so that we can all get home in God. And that that way would become Jesus. That's what Mark answers. Mark says, Isaiah said this, but it was bigger than we ever anticipated. So Isaiah 40, just to review uh, the way through Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Isaiah says, hey everyone, it's okay. There will be a way leading us out of this mess. Okay. So we follow Isaiah, and this way takes us through the rest of the book. And in Isaiah chapter 42, we see a leader for us on this way. He will show us how to navigate this path. You will remember this person. Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold, my servant. Do you remember the servant? There's four important passages on the servant. And here the servant, God says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Remember that line. It's coming up in Mark. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So Isaiah tells us we have a servant guiding us on this path. Then, in Isaiah 55, oh no, Isaiah 46, don't forget this. There are a couple of off-ramps on the way. Don't fall for those tourist traps. They'll try to sell you things. So, Isaiah 46, verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Those are Babylonian idols and gods. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, and they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. 
Isaiah is basically saying, look, these idols, they have to be carried by animals, and you want to carry them? So carry an idol. Go ahead. Burden yourself out on the path. You're going to walk on the way, and that idol is going to weigh you down. You're going to take an off-ramp say, I'm just going to rest a little bit at this rest stop, and life will go, and you'll stay. Or, so carry an idol, or, verse 4, be carried by God. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. So the servant's going to show us how on the way to be carried by God. Then Isaiah in chapter 55 recognizes that we've been going through quite a few chapters and might be getting a little weary and forgetting the way. And he reminds us with an appetizer of what's to come. Just wet our appetite a little bit. And he says in Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. It's free, in other words. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Gang, the way is taking us to the great feast, the great banquet. Why waste your appetite on this worthless food. The way will give us little appetizers and like keep our appetite going. Keep going, he says. And then in verse 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and hills before you shall break into singing and the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. So as you go, Isaiah is saying, as you continue on the way, there will be joy and singing and even creation is going to be going, yes, there is a part of creation that gets it. And Paul in chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, says that creation is yearning for our redemption. So creation's rooting for you. And then finally, in Isaiah 65, we see where the way ends up. This is the end of Isaiah. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. For the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is where the way through the wilderness is going to take us. It's going to take us to a new heaven and a new earth, as we looked at last week. That's where we're going. So, Christian, Isaiah has already been telling us what the North Pole looks like. It looks like a new heaven and a new earth. It looks like a banquet. And there's a servant taking us on the way there. And be careful of those idols. They're going to make you slow down quite a lot. Then, though, Mark picks right up and finishes the story that Isaiah couldn't quite see. That this banquet, that this new heaven and new earth, it's not just a concept out there. It's not ambush versus gorse bush or provision for something to eat. It's a person. A person comes. A person shows us. And so Mark says, Jesus, Jesus will help us navigate our way between here and that future end. So we know where the way is going, but we don't always know how to navigate the turns, do we? We don't always know where the next step is. We don't always know how to handle this, this little part here where there's a little creek. That's, that's the person who annoys you a lot. The little creek. And you're like, I don't know how to navigate. Should I step over it? Should I kick it? Should I build a bridge over it? Should I dam it up? What should I do? <laughs> Jesus doesn't just show us where we're going. He shows us how to walk on this path. And please understand that that's so important. It is not enough to be on the right path. I mean, sure, you'll get where that path will take you where you need to go. What God is interested in is building people on the path who look like the path. So that road and traveler are one and the same. There's a oneness. So that our direction toward the new heaven and new earth begins to not just look like some jerks on their way to some parent, like we're the privileged ones, we're going, you all burn in hell. <laughs> the path is meant to change us to be like the one leading us on it, Jesus. 
And the way we walk it is as important as choosing to walk it. So Jesus will show us how. So Mark. And quite literally picks up where Isaiah leaves off. This is how he, he starts with one title and then he goes right into Isaiah. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, (laughs) he could not wait. Forget the birth, forget the childhood of Jesus, forget the singing angels and the angry Herod and the three wise men and the star and all that stuff. Even though some of that's in Isaiah, forget all that. I am right to business. All right. Yeah. Title. This is the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. Okay. okay. Now, Isaiah, the prophet said, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your are you paying attention? Way. Right away, we see the word hadas. Now, we need to give Mark a little bit of grace here because he's so excited to write this. Notice how he skips everything and just goes right into Jesus' baptism. So we're about to see. He also doesn't specify for you that that's actually Malachi. <laughs> the next verse is Isaiah. But this actually was a common thing that Jews would do. They would take two verses that were very similar and marry them and then tribute it to whichever prophet they choose at the moment. So apparently, Mark liked Isaiah and not Malachi as much. Apparently. (laughs) But so he takes Malachi and marries it with Isaiah, which is verse 3. So let's let's just read this again, verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your hadas. Malachi, now Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the hadas of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Why does he launch right into citing the Old Testament? Two prophets who talk about the hadas, the way. Because he wants you to read the whole gospel through this lens. Why else start with these verses? No prelude other than you're going to read about the gospel of the Son of God. That's it. Then right away he wants to say, hadas, hadas. Mark wants us to have that way that Isaiah prophesied in our minds when we read the story about Jesus. This is not accidental. The author is telling you how to read this. So we're awake and we're aware of the way the expedition to the North Pole is before us. Now the story begins in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. Where was the way to start? Isaiah said, in the wilderness. And proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This was a revival. Now, we had a tent revival in Calvary's days. This was a wilderness riverside revival. Not in Riverside. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I think I made a joke last week or two weeks ago about the locust and wild honey diet, if anyone wanted to try it with me. And someone took me literally... I just want to clarify, I'm not on a diet of locusts and wild honey. (laughs) But if you want to try it, let me know how it goes. (laughs) Ron? (laughs) (laughs) Verse 7, and he preached, saying, After me comes one whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. So the setting is set. Just like Isaiah said, we're in the wilderness. Guess where the way is starting? Right here in the wilderness at the Jordan River. Now, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw. Now, you might recall this from a couple weeks ago. He saw the heavens being torn open. That is a reference to Isaiah chapter 64. Remember when the prophet was praying, God, please rend the heavens and come down. 
like the way you did in the Exodus and you came down and freed them, please do that for us now. Rend the heavens and free us. Well, the prayer is being answered. God is rending the heavens and he has come down. He is Jesus. And second, the spirit descended on him like a dove. The servant we were told about in Isaiah, we just read it in Isaiah 42, that God's spirit will fill him. The servant will be filled with the spirit. Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. Here we see the the servant who was meant to show us how to walk on the way is here. The heavens are torn open. The servant's here. He's filled with the spirit. See what Mark's doing? Now, you may miss some of this if we weren't already cued to think about Isaiah when we read. But Mark has given us the hints we need. And now in verse 11, there's one more Isaiah hint here. And a voice came from heaven. Now, there's two things it says. The voice says, one, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. That is a citation. So God is using Psalm chapter 2 to talk to Jesus. It's a citation from Psalm chapter 2. Why? Because everyone knew what Psalm 2 was about. It was about the king that God would appoint, even though all the nations are rebelling against him, and he would give him the rod of iron to put the rebels at bay. And at the end of the psalm, it says, kiss this king and all will go well with you. This is the king, in other words. The king, this is, this is Jesus's coronation. This is the moment when he comes out of the water, the heavens are ripped open, salvation has come, the spirit comes upon him, here's a servant, follow him, and then the voice from heaven, presumably God, says, this is my son, this is the Messiah, this is the king of Psalm 2 who will lead and inherit the nations. So as he comes out of the water, you have a new king, a new kingdom, the servant leading us on the way that's going to carry us through the wilderness. Pay attention, Mark is saying. Something enormous is happening here. And the voice from heaven is confirming it. All you who hear and see this, don't forget this. You want to follow this person down the way, starting now. So that's the first thing it says. You are my beloved son. Second, with you I am well pleased. I just told you to remember something from Isaiah chapter 42. This is that verse. Um, I think, in I don't remember now, but I think in Isaiah it said, uh, with, in whom my soul delights, here with him I am well pleased. It's the same verse. What happens is they're citing the Greek version of Isaiah. So you have, you know, slight different sounding words. But um, even my Bible cross-references it to Isaiah 42 for you. So there you go. So what's he saying? Yep, this is the king, my chosen, but he's also that servant whom my soul delights. So not only the filling of the spirit, but now the words confirm that the one coming out of the water is the servant whom Isaiah said would come to help us. So the way is opened up in the wilderness. So what happens? Well, it's one thing to find the way, but it's a total another thing to learn how to walk on the way. I mean, we live at a very great place to illustrate this. Our curves, our hills, our hair turn, pin, hair pin turn, whatever you call them, <laughs> the one you just made to get here in the parking lot, you know, all those potholes. My goodness, how long are they going to, when is... Anyone working for the government hearing this fix our roads? Um, you know, we get used to it, right? We're very comfortable kind of weaving around. It's always around this time when a lot of visitors come up for fall on the weekend that you're reminded, oh, yeah, you have to know how to travel this way, <laughs> right? We get frustrated. or they're, I tell you, people forget how stop signs work when they come up here. They just, I know they have them down there. I see them. But it's like the thin air, they just forget how it works. It's, it's funny to me. Um, there's a way to walk on this way. 
And Jesus is going to be put to the test right away. So the spirit, verse 12, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the animal, or the angels were ministering to him. So Mark is very brief here. You know from Matthew and Luke that the devil gives him three temptations. But Mark is silent about those, so I don't want to go too much into those right now. I want to do what Mark's trying to present here. Um, you can read those, and it's, it's really great to look at those three temptations and to just meditate on them because they're, whew, they're very real. But what Mark wants to simply point out is that he was with the wild animals. I don't think that that's just a geographical or biological footnote. By the way, while he was there, there were animals. Like, okay, there were rocks too. Who cares? Mark is trying to tell us about the temptation that there are other ways to discover our North Poles and that Jesus was offered a multitude of ways and the test that he is in in the wilderness is which way will he walk? There's the way of the wild beasts and then there's the way of Isaiah. We know that Jesus takes the way of Isaiah. But let's consider the ways of the wild beasts. Wild beasts is a term not just for creatures that howl at night, but in the Bible it's a term for the pagan lords who rule over and oppress people. Think of Revelation, the beast. John saw the beast rising up out of the sea. We call him the Antichrist, which is actually not the Revelation name for him. That's what we call him. Revelation sees him as a beast because he rips apart and tramples people. That's the wild beasts in the Bible. Is Jesus going to take, in other words, the path that the other rulers before him have taken, or is he going to choose God's path, the path talked about in Isaiah? In his day, there was Caesar, the path of power, ruled in Jerusalem through Pilate who protected his power and put Jesus on the cross. There was also Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus at his birth, who was known for building great things and was a political genius, Herod was. Found a way to survive. Killed many of his own family members to survive, but that was Herod. And then Herod's son, who we'll meet later in this gospel. The political genius of Herod. That's another path. A lot of political geniuses in our country too right now. And that's a path that a lot of people are taking. That's the way to the North Pole, politics. Um, There was also Caiaphas, the high priest, who will put Jesus to death. Caiaphas took the path of religion. That if I get the right position of religious power, I will find the North Pole. But we see where his path of religion leads, and it's ugly. It's crucifying people who don't agree with your version of God. Those are some of the wild beasts that would have been right there in Jesus' time. We have a lot of wild beasts offering us our own paths. Money, sex, power, your age-old trilogy. But then there's the Jesus way. And that's what we're going to see from this moment on. Jesus emerges from the wilderness, having triumphed over Satan and the ways of the beasts. And now we see him in action. What are the first steps of the way? Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying. First thing he does is he preaches. The time is fulfilled. What time? Remember Isaiah talking all about how God's going to restore the fortunes of his people? The time is fulfilled. It's here. It's now. This is exciting. And he clarifies the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. No more the kingdoms of this world. No more the kingdoms of Caesar or of Herod or of Alexander the Great or of Napoleon Bonaparte. No more of those kingdoms. The kingdom of God is at hand. Something's happening. So the invitation is asking us to come on the way with him. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Gospel means good news. This good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. All right. So passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, this is only the second thing he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So the first steps on the way, Jesus is inviting others on the way. Verse 21. Now, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. This guy knows his stuff. And not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. Yeah, they thought it was just another day in the synagogue. (laughs) They didn't expect that. And so they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. What is this? You're looking at the way, the expotition to the North Pole. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, so he heals a guy with an unclean spirit. In verse 29, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. That same evening, verse 32, at sundown, everyone who was sick or oppressed by demons in the whole village came to him, and he healed them all. Then in verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now Jesus charged him, you know, go show the priest, but tell no one about this. But in verse 45, the healed man went out and began to talk freely about it, and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter town, but went out to desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So the way is here, and people are getting on. But question, how do you know that you are on the right way? Or better yet, how do you know you're going the right direction on the way? You look at the signs. You look at the signs. If you need to go to Arizona, you take the 10 East. If you notice on your way that the sign says 10 West, expect a lot of heavy traffic as you approach Los Angeles. You're going the wrong way. You need to see the signs pointing you the right way. And as you near your destination, the signs become more and more frequent. Exit, you know, five miles. Exit, two miles. Exit here. And then when you're at the stoplight, turn this way. And then it's like, it's here. Park there. Uh, You look for the signs. Now, what John's gospel does, the fourth gospel, John, he calls what we, we refer to these events we just read as miracles. John calls them signs. And that's very insightful of John because that is what we have before us. We don't just have... um, I was watching Duck Dynasty 
Um, I don't watch it, but <laughs> I was for I was in Arizona with Britney's parents, and I don't know, they were watching. It was like the one show I saw. I was like, it was kind of hilarious. Um, they kept going. I don't remember what it was. I couldn't find it, but they were going on and on about it's a miracle. I think something like the truck was fixed with like a low bill or something. It was something like trivial like that. That like sometimes in life we attribute those things as miracles. And they're the whole episode. They're going around. It's a miracle. <laughs> it was kind of humorous. I can't help but think sometimes when we we use the word miracle, we refer to things big and small. Parting of the Red Sea and I found my keys. It's a miracle. (laughs) But to clarify, what's happening with Jesus in the Bible is that his miracles are signs letting you know which way you're going. So as people join Jesus on the way and they see people being healed... Those are signs saying you're headed to the new heaven and new earth. You found the right path. Keep going. Now, if you somehow make a U-turn and start going the wrong way, you should see the opposite. You should see people getting hurt. Whether by you or just around you. But the thing that Jesus does is he heals us so that we can heal others. And we should see a difference on the path if we're going the right way. Those are the signs we're looking for. So, um, what we want to look at is the fact that the first people Jesus calls respond to his invitation on the way by, it says, leaving their nets. And immediately, verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. We get entangled in the other ways of living that the world pushes at us. And there are a few ways within America. It's, and you can call it whatever you want. You put a nice little term on it and it sounds okay. But what we want to be aware of is not how culture tells us to walk on the way, but we want to see how Jesus tells us to walk on the way. Friends, we're different. The church is the called out ones. They are meant to be on a different journey. And we cannot use the tactics of society to accomplish our expedition to the North Pole. We must walk the path as Jesus walked it. And he's going to challenge us as we follow him. He's going to do it not the way we would do it. And Peter's going to get called out pretty harshly on that. Don't forget that that's you and I. We want to leave these things that entangle us. We're trapped. We've, been, we've grown up. We've been raised and educated in certain ways of thinking that life is about numbers instead of names. Jesus is nowhere into numbers and growth in that sense. He's into the names of people that follow him. Right? He's into relationship, not into making sure this function gets accomplished. He wasn't a go conquer. He was a go and change in seismic shifts. Remember that in Isaiah? The servant came not to gain attention, but to from the outside work inward and bring the seismic shifts in. That's what Jesus is going to lead us in. The servant on the way. So how we can leave our nets, especially when they're wrapped around us and it's hard to get rid of these, is by following the three commands Jesus gives us in this short passage. Three commands. He said, repent, believe, and follow me. Start with repent. We've been going the wrong way. Let's just use our words for the word repent. It means U-turn. So if you're going the wrong way, make the U-turn. That's repent. You don't need to think of someone on the street corner with a bullhorn and the angry sign that the end of the world's coming. They usually use the word repent a lot. All we need to realize is that, you know what? If we've been going and adopting the ways of another path, let's U-turn. Let's dump that. Let's get rid of that. The word gospel, he said, repent and believe in the gospel. And then verse 1, I breezed over it, but it's really significant. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. These are repent words. Gospel means good news. You know that. You're Christians. 
you may not realize is that that Greek word evangelion was a word used and well-known by Romans. Because every time a new emperor would ascend the throne of Rome, they would send out messengers who would say, evangelion, good news, there's a new king. And he will bring us wealth and prosperity. Of course, you want to go tell him everyone, don't start a revolt just because the king's dead. There's already another one on the throne, and it's good news. So don't even think about revolting. So the Christians took the language of their time to say, look, something mind-blowing is happening. Let's, let's use good news because people know what that means. It's not that kind of king, though. It's this kind of king. Caesar walks that way. Jesus walks this way. The good news, by calling Jesus the good news, it was an intentional challenge to Caesar. It's a call for a U-turn. That was your political ruler? Think again, because there's a new king in town. Repent. Also, the word Jesus the Christ, we often forget that Christ was actually a title. It's not his middle name or his last name. It's not his nickname. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. Messiah, the Jews understood to be God's chosen ruler. David, in other words, King David is a Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the king of the kings that the Jews are waiting for. He's come. Call him Christ amidst in a world where Caesar is reigning and killing Christians while Mark is writing? Yep. These are fighting words. These are repentance words. These are do a U-turn if you're following the ways of Rome and Caesar or your society. And also, so the gospel of Jesus, Christ, and Son of God. Again. Now, yes, he is the Son of God. He is divinity. But it is kind of strange that Caesar decided to use that title for himself as well. When Julius Caesar took over the Republic and turned it into an empire and died, his adopted son, Octavian, known as Augustus, he took the title son of God because he told everybody, my father is a God. I saw him go up into heaven. And every Caesar after him said, yep, my dad went to heaven. I'm a God. I'm the representative. And if you ask any Roman on the street, hey, who's the son of God? They would promptly and accurately answer Caesar. But the New Testament says, "Ah, that's a really bad example of the son of God. Here's the son of God, Jesus You see what's happening? Mark launches with political fighting words. It's a mess. I think our politics are a mess. Mark is, he's wrestling the beast, literally. And so there's this dramatic call to repent. So it doesn't just mean, oh, I have this habit of smoking, I better repent. The Bible has way bigger concerns than that. The Bible's saying, Oh, you think Jesus is your king, but consider whose kingdom you're mimicking. Repent from that. And we'll see more of what that looks like as we go. So the kingdom of Caesar is not always sin. It's other ways of walking the path, like putting yourself first. How come we don't talk about that as a sin? We want to harp on certain sins. We don't want to harp on people being selfish. The Bible's a lot more to say about being selfish than it does about habits. Well, repent. Second, he says, believe. Believe in the gospel. Um, Believe does not mean you've got it all figured out. I believe because I have confidence. The characters in Winnie the Pooh had zero confidence in their journey. They didn't even understand a thing Christopher Robin was saying. Actually, Christopher Robin, whom you could see as a pastor, had absolutely no idea what he was talking about either. (laughs) Yet they were all in it together and realized, we don't really know what this is or where it's going, but we know that when we're together, it's going to end up well. Jesus is inviting the disciples, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And do you really think as they're thriving in their business and they just drop their nets like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Let's go be fishers of men. Come on, guys. The other fishermen be like, uh, good luck getting money on that. We'll make a living. You guys go fish men. And so they follow Jesus. Do you think, do you think maybe that in their minds it was Winnie the Pooh going all over again? 
Like, what does he mean by expotition? What is that? It's not their necks I'm afraid of, it's their teeth. <laughs> it's like these kind of weird dialogues that we read about. I can imagine that that's exactly what goes through the disciples' minds. And anybody who's following Jesus is like, we don't get anything yet, but we see something. We see something. The signs are there. We're going to believe. Now, I'm not saying that your faith needs to believe in ridiculous things. I think Christianity is completely reasonable. It's surprising. It's not something I would make up, but it's very, very reasonable. And it's more reasonable than all the other philosophies I've heard. However, it took me time walking on the path to realize it's reasonable. At first, I may not have completely understood how the Trinity works. Well, I probably still don't. But did that stop me? I just believed, okay, yeah, I'll get that later. But there's something here. Repent, believe, just get on the way. You start walking it, the path will start to make sense. I can explain to you how to hike Strawberry Peak, and it's very confusing. It's so confusing that Richard did a really good thing for the guests here and made the path abundantly clear so guests can actually hike Strawberry Peak. Because when you explain how to get to the tower from here, good luck. I can tell you perfectly how to do it. But it doesn't make sense till your feet walk it, right? And so we start walking the way, and then these things start to click and make better sense. Repent, believe. You might see some of the ways that Jesus says walking on the way requires, and you're like, that's insane, that's absurd, that's crazy, I'm not doing that. Or I'll do that for everybody but him. (laughs) He's asking and inviting you to just believe that this way is going somewhere good, and you'll get it when you start walking it. Repent, believe, finally follow. Follow me. So this, this is a way that requires our feet. It requires the lifestyle. It requires... I remember my youth pastor's wife put it this way. and so It stuck forever. It was so simple and perfect. She said, it, it hit me that when Jesus says, follow me, he means it like follow the leader. The child game. It isn't just go where he goes. It's do what he does. And follow the leader. If the leader's skipping around the chairs ten times, you have to skip around the chairs ten times. You don't just go around the chairs. You skip them. If he skips singing a song backwards, you have to skip singing the song backwards. That's how follow the leader works. And that's what Jesus means when he says, follow me. But, and finally, it is important to notice who he is asking to follow him. Who he's asking It can be easy for us to go to church, sit in the seats, pews, whatever, and to say, okay, cool, yep, you got it. Brandon's the expert. He's the Christopher Robin leading us, not knowing that I'm talking to Rabbit over here, like, I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, It can be easy for us to kind of get in this passive role of, cool, I'm on for the ride. You drive the car down the way. No, Jesus is asking us, all of us, to follow him. And I have to follow him just as much as you do. Just as much. Not less. Not sort of like. Just as much. Now, Jesus' 12 disciples were not the cream of the crop. Oh, those are people to show us the way. Yeah, good pick, Jesus. In fact, Evidence from the way people lived back then suggests that the disciples were 13 or 12 years old, maybe 14. We're talking about freshmen, maybe eighth graders, which terrifies me. (laughs) And here's why. Because they're fishing. Now, a Jewish boy would grow up memorizing the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and he'd be quizzed on things, and when he became of a certain age, he would then be tasked with more and more. There was a process. And at any point, if you decided that you weren't cut out for this rabbi thing, that you weren't going to learn the whole Testament and have all the answers and become like your rabbi, then you would have to drop out and decide it's time to make a real living. And so around 13 years old is where you'd have the big drop-off. Those who you knew were cut out for the rabbi business and those who you knew were not. So, Peter, James, John, Andrew, you know who we're looking at when Jesus calls them? We're looking at the high school dropouts. 
We're not looking at the varsity team. We're looking at the JV team. These are the B class, the B team, the, yeah, we all need a rest, so put them in the game. That's who we're looking at. And Jesus chooses them. He doesn't go to Jerusalem to the fine establishments of religion and knowledge of the Torah and the Old Testament. He doesn't go to them and say, follow me so we can pave this path. He goes to the common person. And he says, you, me, let's go. And I'm going to teach you this way. And you are going to then teach others. You know why we think the disciples are amazing people? Because eventually they became the Jesus, the servant leading others on the way. But they had to be led too. And they were just like you and me. On the way, no one's an expert. Not even Christopher Robin. No one is an expert. We are all following Jesus. And we are all given the same chance to to walk with him on this path. So it's not like the pastor has the edge or the missionary or the scholar. We're all the B class and he's calling us all to follow him. So let's leave our nets. Let's not be entangled in the ways that the world has taught us. Let's do the repentance, the U-turn. Let's believe and and trust we're going to understand as we go with him and let's follow him. That's all you need. The education of an imitator. Let's pray.